Hello, it's Nick Brown here with Rachel Egbeko, our senior editor for the October Atoms. Welcome, Rachel. Hi, Nick. Well, we're spoiled for choice again. And um, the the theme of today, well, we'll, ex- we'll expand on that, but it goes back to or the, the pivotal moment, which um, I used as an introduction, were some events in uh, the early 1950s, which... Uh, led me to expand and wonder whether there were messages there relevant for our current times. I I had to giggle and then do a a quick search as to what happened in 1952, uh, other than Emil Zatopek winning the 5,000 metres, the 10,000 metres and the marathon. Well, from an athletics point of view, that was probably the high point. But there were a lot of other things going on concurrently. So the uh, scenario, if you like, was set um, at the peak of the uh, US polio epidemic. Um, but amongst other things, there was a lot of NATO activity. George the Sixth, of course, died and his daughter Elizabeth became queen, um, which is, of course, extremely topical. Um, but the, uh, the, the, the pivotal moment was set in a paediatric emergency department in an urban East Coast US setting somewhere. I didn't really decide where. It didn't seem to matter that much. So what you describe in the, in the introduction there, uh, Nick, is a child in an ED department with fairly innocuous symptoms, sore throat, uh, and then represents with far more severe disease requiring, as, a, as it was then, iron lung therapy. And I wonder, you know, is there, as, as you did, is there a, a lesson in that, in that story? Um, and I wondered whether we could think about one of uncertainty and risk management and the acceptance, or not, that 100% of sensitivity and specificity actually doesn't exist. So in our complex world, we deal with humans and thus human factors. And I realise that human factors is a term that is used ever more widely and, and no two words can really do justice to the wide variety of reasons for things to happen or not to happen. Uh, but it does allow us for, to think about our practice beyond biological paradigms. And I think that's where it, where it landed for me. Um, and and discussing the three papers uh, that we will do in a minute, I, I think we cannot conclude anything else than that biology has its place, but it's not necessarily the only place uh, in our thinking. So we'll be discussing three papers, and the, the first paper deals with mental health in chronic uh, disease. The paper's called Feasibility of Single question mental health surveillance in chronic disease by Dr. Mary White and colleagues, including senior author Professor Harriet Hiscock in Melbourne, Australia. And they present their study results in the realm of struggling and thriving. If ever there was a human condition, those two would be very apt. I suppose the, the, the question there was, was a single question, it's a single question uh, okay to screen for a child mental health status. Um, why is this question of interest? Well, we know that about a third of children and young people with chronic disease have mental health needs. 
So in order to be able to address these needs, we have to be able to identify these children and young people that might benefit from help. There are tools to do so. Uh, they are time consuming. So a validated single question to screen for mental health issues is rather attractive. In this study now, several hundred of caregivers, as well as older children, were screened for mental health issues with this warned question questionnaire. And the authors concluded that it was feasible to incorporate this in usual clinical practice when children were admitted for their routine medical care. Like you, I found its simplicity and um, speed of administration quite quite attractive. It doesn't claim to be the fi- the final word in mental health diagnosis, but from a pragmatic "how are you doing?" point of view, at point of entry, um, it's a, it's a useful guide which can potentially uh, direct um, any immediate peri outpatient peri daycare concerns and um, potentially will certainly uh, expedite earlier thorough assessment um, and almost certainly earlier referral of those uh, uh, those characteristics I I, I found interesting and potentially useful. What I found most interesting, and this is a lesson, I guess, for us in any situation, um, was the the the, the uh, difference in sensitivity and specificity by a subtle change in the inquiry. So, if parents were asked if they were coping, and that's a fairly um, rough and ready term, are you essentially getting through? That the the majority were, um, and um, though that's good to know, that's essentially quite a um, uh, an insensitive tool. Um, most people get through. Um, it doesn't pick up subtler nuances, um, which the word "Are you coping?" the phrase "Are you coping?" subsequently did. And I found that very interesting. And I thought, actually, this isn't exclusive to mental health screening. This is useful in a lot of situations. And I found that thought provoking too. So let's go on to the next paper, which deals with, um, on the face of it, high-end medical interventions, um, in this case, liver transplantation. But in this case, there's also the human condition. So in this edition, the authors led by Dr. Shireen Ann Nahr of Department of Surgery, Faculty of Medicine, University of Malaya in Malaysia, provide a meta-analysis of donor recipient gender profiles in paediatric living donor transplantation. So this study gives us much needed paediatric focus. Most work, of course, has been done in adults, not just on the medical side of things, but also from a wider perspective. A recent European-based study by the European Committee on Organ Transplantation of the Council of Europe noted that more dead donors were men and more living donors were women. More recipients, as well, men. Dr. Nahr's group included a total of 14 studies in their their review, 14 studies from 12 countries, representing well over a thousand recipients and uh, well over 6,000 recipients and 6,000 donors. Stratification wasn't only in country prosperity defined by the World Bank criteria but also gender parity. So their findings are very interesting and give a more uh, subtle 
and nuanced analysis than the broad strokes that women are more likely to give and men are more likely to receive. Yeah, Nick. So, so, so I welcomed this uh, this this paper uh, looking at the the paediatric uh, perspective um, uh, in uh, in organ donation, and in this case, um, living donor liver donation. The broad strokes, as you've just just outlined, um, give give some rise to thought. So, uh, you can start with biology. The questions about size, questions about the immunological side of uh, of things, but then if you delve a bit deeper and ask slightly um, more nuanced questions, so could you put that in the perspective of gender parity? Could you put that in the perspective of uh, income? Then a slightly different picture uh, appears, which you can't really explain by biology, and if I would were to paraphrase this study, you could sort of say, well, well we need to think about why is it that mothers um, might give uh, more to sons or why is it that sons um, receive more? So um, is there an over-representation of mothers? Is there an under-representation of fathers? Uh, what are the backgrounds to these uh, differences? Uh, do girls get what it is that they require? Um, uh, and what uh, what makes it so? So not just stating these are the differences, but then trying to figure out why that is, and then uh, what are the actions that we need to take to uh, to address these differences? Because here, the authors uh, rightly say mm, biology probably doesn't cut it here. Now it's a bit of a jump from liver transplantation to pneumonia. But this paper also sets us to think about other things other than biology. The paper is called Higher Childhood Pneumonia Admission Threshold Remains in Lao PDR, an observational study by the Asia-Pacific Research Group with Professor Fiona Russell in Melbourne, Australia, and colleagues at the Faculty of Public Health, University of Health Sciences, Vientiane in Lao PDR. So the authors performed a prospective observational cohort study in four hospitals in Vientiane, Lao, PDR. The children were aged between two and 59 months um, uh, and they looked at how they were treated uh, for their pneumonia. What we need to know is that the current WHO guidelines were updated in 2014 and implemented uh, in Lao, PDR in 2015. So in essence, non-severe pneumonia and severe pneumonia to be distinguished from each other and only severe ones need to be hospitalised. I found this very interesting and I, I, I've been um, involved in some capacity in this area for quite some time now. A lot of the lessons here are applicable to antimicrobial resistance, of course, because the WHO guidance deliberately simplified the treatment and raised the threshold for antibiotic treatment um, in the hope and expectation that that's, that's what would happen. So that's, that's one spoke of this. Um, but in Laos, and I think in common with many countries, behaviour change has been, or certainly was, slow to take place. And that's as we said earlier, an, as, an aspect of 
human behavior um, and the difficulty in change in changing human behavior there may have been factors awareness um, pressure on doctors um, and 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 so on um, but at the same time admission increases pressure on families disruption normal life the financial issues and so on it's very interesting and um, uh, salutary to um, to see how um, how slow the cogs are to change sometimes the uh, main measures indeed is that there is there is something beyond uh, designing uh, a different way of uh, doing things such as uh, treatment of pneumonia and then saying that you've implemented or adopted it but the implementation as you say takes a long while um, and that, and I was wondering what is it that um, uh, there is to offer uh, I wouldn't necessarily say a blueprint uh, but uh, the the crutch or or help for people who have to change their behavior and say this okay um, uh, it might feel uh, unpleasant or uh, you might feel that there's too high a risk to do things but on balance uh, it's it's better to take that risk so people need to understand that so the the that's the the risk management changes for something that an individual feels to something that is embedded in systems yes completely agree as always there was a lot of there were a lot of other papers um in in this month's issue which we weren't able to squeeze into in into this space but thanks so much for the discussion rachel as always um thought-provoking and very interesting so we publish re regular podcasts about s some of the best content of the latest issue in the journal and if you don't want to miss it please subscribe on your preferred platform for example apple podcasts and spotify to get these directly on your device we'd also like to hear from you so please get in touch to our social media channels or leave a review in um, on the ADC podcast page on iTunes. So thank you from me and thank you, Rachel, once again. We'll see you next month. Thanks. Bye for now.